According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs chapter 6, coming to an end of the chapter, really, verses 20 through 35. 20 through 35, the second half of this chapter. Back to the uh, uh, fornication issues. My son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life. To keep you from the evil woman. And that's where the rest of the chapter takes us. All right, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask God the Father to bless our time in his word this morning. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word. Thank you for the blessing we have to uh, provide parking spaces for our new neighbors and uh, pray for grace as we uh, get to meet them and learn about their uh, ministry and their uh, service to the community. Father, uh, ask for wisdom if there's realms that we can cooperate and participate with them, that uh, Father, just open our eyes to those fruit-bearing opportunities as well. Father, thank you for this morning and uh, the blessings in Proverbs. I pray that we not lose track of everything, Father. we got Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday coming up, and all the focus and all the attention on the ordination and the conference and all of that. Um, but, Father, we got today still. We've got to teach Proverbs and Galatians, so use today to uh, glorify your Son and bless, uh, bless what we do. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Yeah, I almost forgot we had class this morning. We've been getting, <laughs> getting ready for this weekend. And I got all the way down here, didn't even have my keys. I was locked out of the church. I thought, goodness. What else can go wrong today? Yeah, I got a Bible. I leave that here, though. That's trying to outsmart myself. All right. Proverbs chapter 6. Back to the my son admonishment. After we get through the first half of the chapter, and and really this has kind of formed a a side trip. It's formed an excursus, if you will, uh, which is just a fancy Latin term for side trip. And uh, we've had several issues here in, in chapter 3, 4, 5, we, several warnings to a young man about the snares of life, and most of them are sexual, a lot of them are sexual. Uh, but in chapter 6, we started to get to the non-sexual ones, including money and uh, other things that can ruin your life if you don't handle money well, if you violate the commandments of God and, and get involved in things like surety for your neighbor, a pledge for a stranger, Okay, there's another stranger verse we're talking about this morning. Um, and then, so those issues there, go to the ant, O sluggard. Uh, don't be a sluggard. Work and to honor the Lord in your work, in the issues there, uh, because otherwise your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man, in verse 11. And then the, uh, the beliles of society uh, that we see in verses 12 and following, and, uh, and those issues in terms of chaos within culture, 
within uh, state and local federal government, <laughs> okay? And uh, I think you've got a good description of politicians in many respects there with the Belials and the sons of Belial in, uh, in verse 12. And then what we've been dealing with most recently has been the hatred lessons of 16 through 19, the six things, even seven, that the Lord hates that are an abomination to his soul. And, uh, and those issues there in verses 17 through 19, which now brings us back, side trip over, to uh, back to the uh, dominant topic of parental wisdom, and that is um, the, uh, the sexual stuff. So this is point five. And I did not write my slide down, so let's see. There it is. Nope. There it is. I will remember that slide 29 if I have to find it again. All right. The remainder of chapter 6, as well as on into chapter 7, returns to the parental wisdom admonishment against soul-hunting harlotry. The uh, parental wisdom admonishment against soul-hunting harlotry, verses 20 through 35. And this is the the, the toughest language yet that we've encountered in any of the uh, previous discourses against fornication, against adultery, and uh, all of which, of course, falls under the more generic term of harlotry. Here in this chapter, it is specifically referenced as being the hunting of souls, as we see in verse 26. On account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. And that's an awkward translation, probably not the best. But on account of a harlot, a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious nefesh, for the precious soul, okay? Uh, Translated life, but the term is nefesh for soul. And uh, this is what we deal with, with soul hunters and what is really on the prowl. It's not just, uh, you know, uh, carousing. It's not just looking around trying to trying uh, for, for cheap sex somewhere. It's actually soul hunting, not body hunting. And, uh, and aspects there we're going to have to deal with. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? You know, you take a lit torch and you shove it down the front of your shirt. Um, you know, I don't recommend that. But if you do that, uh, you know, if you do that 100 times, uh, guess what? 100 out of 100 times, you're going to get burned. All right? It's, it's, not, uh, it's not even when you're playing with fire, that's what's going to happen. Can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? In the uh, rhetorical question there in verse 28, so is the one who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Uh, You're playing with fire and you will get burned. You cannot avoid it. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. And even if you think you're getting away with it, even if you think the husband never finds out or doesn't know and and all your sneaking around, all your secrecy and and, and the, the most wildly successful uh, sneak that's ever come along is, is not really sneaking. God knows what's happening and the damage is already being done, far, starting with his soul, then his body, and then everything else. And so, uh, as I say, that's why this chapter, I think, gets more blunt, it gets more direct than uh, the admonishments that have come before. All right. It starts off in a way that kind of reintroduces the subject matter by making use of familiar expressions. So sub-point A, uh, this admonishment begins with a reintroduction. It's almost like uh, a reboot, if you will. He's going to go back and bring in uh, previous expressions um, just to 
just to get back in the in the mode of the parental wisdom admonishments against the uh, the fornication issues. This admonishment begins with a reintroduction that employs familiar expressions from previous admonishments. And so we have the parallels. Proverbs 6.20, My son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. That is so reminiscent of what we had previously in uh, chapter 1 and verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. And so it's almost like a reboot. It's almost like a start over. Did we fail to open those doors? All right. Um, and this is, this is a way, rhetorically, that you reintroduce the subject, that you bring people back up to speed, that you uh, get the focus back to where it had previously been. All right. Uh, same thing with verse 21 of chapter 6. Uh, bind them continually on your heart, tie them around your neck. We've seen that previously in chapter 3 and verse 3. As you find a mechanism to uh, keep these things uh, in the forefront of your thinking. You know, tie a string around your finger, <laughs> okay? Or do something to keep the Word of God in, in the forefront of your thinking. Proverbs 3 3 says, Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. In uh, Proverbs 6 22, we have uh, the statement, When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. And we have, again, a passage that's reminiscent of verses that we've previously seen, and, and honestly, verses we're going to see again coming up in the future. This concept that the Word of God is alive and powerful. It actively does things. It is a living agent within you as it goes forth. It will not return void. And it's more than just simply being in Bible class and the information that you learn when you're in a classroom setting. All right, you better pay attention in a classroom setting because if you don't, then how is it going to have the effect that it's supposed to have after you leave the classroom setting? And so uh, when you walk about, all right, as it says in 622, when you walk about, it's not just information that you know while you're sitting here, but it is the power of God that does things through you, in you, for you, to you, uh, when you are out there making application in your daily walk, in your daily life. This is very reminiscent of what we've seen in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, and it'll come back again in uh, later chapters as well. <clears throat> but in 2.11, back up just slightly here, the benefit of learning the Word of God, treasuring it within your heart, seeking her, obtaining uh, this uh, blessing, Notice uh, verse 10, wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. That you internalize it, that you take in the word of God. In, in the New Testament we're told, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And this is what it does. And um, to de- uh, discretion will guard you, understanding will watch over you. The best ally you have is the word of God that you have in residency in your soul. That you've taken in, that you've digested, that you've accepted by faith that you're allowing to dwell richly, and then it, can, then it can spring forth, then it can remind you, then it can guard you, as it says there, to deliver you from the way of evil. This is our present experiential salvation, as we talk about the different phases of salvation. Saved from the penalty of sin, saved from the power of sin. And this is the deliverance that we have here. Receive the word of God implanted that is able to save your soul. Over to chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Uh, notice, um, 
Verse 21, my son, let them not vanish from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion so they will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. Then you will walk in your way securely. Your foot will not stumble. Do you want to have a stable walk? It comes through the Word of God. It comes through the Word of God shaping your thinking, shaping your soul, and you have security. You will walk in your way securely. Your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. You know, you can end your day in faith rest. You can thank the Father. This is a day He's provided. I've done what He's called for me to do this day. I've learned what He's had for me to learn. I've done what He's had for me to do. And, uh, and you know, now I lay me down to sleep. And uh, trust that He's, he's going to watch over me. And if He chooses to give me tomorrow, well then, we'll do it all over again tomorrow. And so when you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. See, and here's the thing, without stability, without the Word of God, without divine viewpoint, and what we, what we, you know, the Word of God does for you, think about all of the fears and all of the regrets and all of the sleepless nights and all of the, the oh, what should I have done? Or, or you know, how bad is it going to get tomorrow? And all of the other regrets. No, this is why we ha- we're able to faith rest because of the living nature of the Word of God that dwells richly within each one of us. So when you lie down, your sleep will be uh, sweet. So there in chapter 3, again, we have the daily walk, we have the, the uh, night of rest. In chapter 6, it expands beyond that. We have the walk, we have the night of rest, we have the sleep, and then we have waking up to do it all over again. When you wake, they will talk to you. Okay? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when the first thing you wake up? You know, Coffee. No. <laughs> Hopefully, before that, okay, because the coffee is downstairs. You got time to pray while you're still upstairs. All right. I'm usually reaching for my glasses and then trying to turn off the alarm and whatever else. Anyway, ideally, first thing that comes to your mind is the Word of God that you were dwelling upon when you said your prayers as you were going to sleep the night before. And the opportunity there. So when you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light. Now why do we have lamps? Why do we have lights? Yeah, I mean, it's better than darkness. But the point of not being in darkness, the point of having light, is so that things will be observed, so that things will be spotlighted. Uh, reproofs for discipline are the way of life. The reason why the light is on is to uh, bring to light the things that need to be brought to light, the stumbling blocks that need to be removed, the, the carnality issues that need to be dealt with, all the other remedial items that, uh, that God is working on. So subpoint B, the lamp and light of God's Word is not only illuminating, but the disciplined reproof of that illumination is what will defend your soul from the hunter's snares. All right? the disciplined reproof of that illumination. The fact that the Word of God is as convicting as it is. It's designed that way. It is disciplined reproof. And you've got vocabulary on this already. I didn't include it in these notes because we dealt with it in, in chapter 1. In a lot of the preliminary vocabulary, the musar. All right? The musar, disciplined instruction. What we have in the New Testament with the nurture and the admonition of the Lord the uh, disciplined instruction that we have as the Word of God provides that for us. 
So the lamp and the light of God's word. Obviously, this is reminiscent of Psalm 119, right? The word of God is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. You think the, uh, you think the author of Psalm 119 was uh, affected by Proverbs in any way? <laughs> I suspect he lived Proverbs uh, throughout his childhood, which is what helped to equip him for the death march to, uh, to Babylon, if in fact that was the context for Psalm 119. All right. Now notice, again, here is the lamp and the light. Uh, the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. We have commandment in terms of mitzvah, all right? And, and uh, the, the commandments of the Lord, remember the, the bar mitzvah, you are a son of the commandment. Um, or the Torah is the teaching, the law. If you want to cross off teaching and just put Torah, you can, but it's the mitzvah and the Torah. The mitzvah is a lamp and the Torah is light. And this is the word of God that commands us, that, that is the law that we are under, and uh, the expectation of obedience to the revealed word of God is, uh, is significant. Reproofs for discipline are the way of life. Be thankful for it. It is normal. It is, a, it is an aspect of our way of life. I like the expression way of life. And here's what it does. To keep you from the evil woman from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. It actually has an effect, and this is what uh, the, the keeping or the guarding is designed to do. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. It comes down to the attitudes. How does the Word of God shape our attitude? And uh, far more significant than the, um, the, the physical activity is the attitude that desires the physical activity, if that makes sense. Um, in... in if you catch it at the mental attitude stage, then you're already two steps ahead of the, the uh, temptation at the, at the physical stage, <laughs> right? And so um, it's, it's a matter of what your heart's desire is. What is your heart's desire? And, uh, and if, if that's all corrupt and whatever, if that's all, um, you know, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, you know, you've you got to start with the heart attitude. And you can hinder some some uh, the, the the physical stuff. You can overrule and and uh, and and stop the physical stuff from happening. But what have you done if the heart is still there? If the heart really wants to do it anyway? So start at the heart level, and that's what the Word of God does. The Word of God dwelling richly within us will shape our attitudes, and we and we saw that in the attitude of eagerness. And uh, here we have uh, this attitude here. What is it that you desire? What is it you desire and you don't desire? And uh, how do we control our desires? <laughs> okay, And that may be the biggest lesson from Proverbs that, that we have going for us here this morning. How do we control our desires? You say, well, you can't control it. You just, you just, you, you, you just have an attraction. Okay? You have a, it's not a term for attraction, it's a term for desire. I'm not saying that it's not attractive, but don't you desire that attraction, okay? As far as, you know, what is attractive and, and what you respond to, how do you respond to that attractiveness or how do you um, respond to that beauty? This verse admits she's beautiful. It says she has beauty, but don't desire her beauty because her beauty is not for you, all right? And, uh, and, and I think uh, we, don't, we don't help our children any if we deny these things. When Hebrews talks about the passing pleasures of sin, 
We've got to be real. We've got we to let folks know, look, there is a pleasure there. It is pleasurable, but it is a passing pleasure. And there are consequences that come after that pleasure is long done. All right? So, but don't lie to them and say, oh, there's no pleasure in it. That's, that's, that's horrible. There's lots of pleasure in it. That's, that's why it's designed that way. Okay? And same thing with beauty. Of course there's beauty there. Don't, uh, don't act like there's not. Okay? Different things there. But do not desire her beauty in your heart. And this is the imperative. And so whatever it is that you find attractive, whatever it is that anybody would find attractive, I mean, you can, you can, uh, you can legitimately identify that's an attractive specimen of beauty, <laughs> but you choose not to desire it. You choose not to desire it and say, no, that's not mine, and I don't want it. I want what God has for me. I want God's perfect provision. And so I choose what I desire, and that is biblical. That is the, the imperative here. Okay? And so all these people that want to talk about, well, you know, I was born this way, or I have these attractions, and whatever, whatever, whatever. Everybody has a lust, because we're all fallen. We all have sin natures. But you choose how you respond to that lust, or not. You choose what you desire, or not. And that's what we see here. Nor let her capture you with her eyelids. Alright? Because if you're not careful, if you don't take your own thoughts captive as we learn in 2 Corinthians, then who's really getting captive? Okay, you are. If you don't take your thoughts captive, if you don't have sovereignty in your spiritual walk, then you're surrendering it. You are just giving it over. And you find that uh, her eyelids have captured you. Okay? And uh, I did a whole, I must have spent six hours on eyelids one day. Just, I don't know why. (laughs) I thought, what's the deal with eyelids? And, and more often than not, it's just parallel with eye anyway. And, and, and it's used in poetry. You have eyes doing this and eyelids doing that and whatever. But I was trying to figure out, well, is there something significant about eyelids? Right? What's significant about eyelids? And I couldn't really come to a firm conclusion. Um, other than, I mean, you don't see eyelids until the eyes are closed. That's, I kept going back to that. Well, if their eyes are open, if they're looking at you, then... You can't see their eyelids. But then when they close their eyes, ah, now you can see their eyelids. Huh. Maybe there's a doctrine in there. I, I couldn't put it together. I, someday I'll figure it out maybe, but anyway. For on account of a harlot, for a harlot is a loaf of bread. That's, that is an awkward verse. Um, Either the harlot is a loaf of bread, the cost of a harlot is a loaf of bread, or the harlot turns you into a loaf of bread um, in connection with the harlot. And, and I think however you want to take the idiom, it's not good. Okay, And a loaf of bread is cheap compared to anything else that you're going to buy. And we're contrasting the cheapness there with the precious soul that has no cost. How do you put a price on your soul? All right. And uh, if you've thrown it away, how do, you, how do you buy it back? Especially when you've sold it so cheaply. Okay? And that's what we'll deal with in that issue. Let's go over to Psalm 119 and, and remind ourselves again about this lamp and this light and see what the Psalm 119 psalmist is doing with it. Psalm 119. And he's doing more with it than we expect.
Verse 105, 109, and 110. This is the noon strophe of Psalm 119. And um, it's more than just the illumination. Okay? If, if 105 was the only verse in this whole strophe, then I think we're diminished in our understanding of it. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Okay, so uh, there it is, my feet, my immediate proximity, my path is where my feet are going. And, and so the word of God should illuminate things, and I'm not going to stumble. Jesus taught that. If you're walking in the light, you don't stumble. But it goes on, okay? And I think in the context of this, we realize that there's conflict in, in our Christian walk. I have sworn, and I will confirm it, that I will keep your righteous ordinances. And so not only does the word benefit me, but I'm under obligation, under a vow, that, uh, that I have a duty to uh, walk according to what the Word of God is illuminating. I am exceedingly afflicted. And so uh, just because you're in the Word of God doesn't mean you don't have problems. There's all kinds of problems. But uh, at least the, the, the light is allowing you to see it properly. Revive me, O Lord, according to your Word. And how many times does that imperative of revive me show up in Psalm 119? Cause me to live. Cause me to live. As Jesus said, I've come that they may have life, that they may have it abundantly. I want to live abundantly. I want to live in a thriving kind of living that the psalmist here calls revive me according to your word. Oh, accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. And you'll notice he's doing exactly what Proverbs 6 would tell him to do, is to take the word of God, to bind it on his heart, to keep it ever before him, so that he doesn't lose sight of these things. Yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me. All right, just like Proverbs 6 says, if you're not living in the Word of God, how is it going to guard you? How is it going to guard you from the strange woman, the evil woman in Proverbs 6? Or how is it going to guard you from the wicked, the wicked men here in, in Psalm 119, verse 110? The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. What's going to bail you out from all these snares? The Word of God. It's a living part of you. You take it in and it's a living part of you. This is, uh, this is um, you know, I, I use the pregnancy uh, illustration a lot, but that's, that's a living thing inside of you when you're pregnant, okay? And I've never experienced that, but I've seen, I've seen four times now that Sharon experienced that. And, and that living thing inside of you that rolls and kicks and does everything that it does, the reminder that it's in there. And, and that's, that's the Word of God. It's a living thing in you. And then thankfully it'll roll and it'll kick and keep you up at night and, and uh, remind you of certain things. That you've got a living thing inside of you. That's the Word of God. All right, I've inherited your testimonies forever. They are a joy of my heart. I've inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. Olam men olam. Forever, even to the end. That's a fun expression. As far as the rest of this goes, let me get back now to Proverbs. Purchased sex is cheap, but its cost far surpasses the price. Some point C, as we look at verse 26. 
purchased sex is cheap, but its cost far surpasses the price. Proverbs 6.26, Proverbs 7.23, Matthew 16, verses 25 and 26. On account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, or the cost of a harlot is a loaf of bread. That's probably the best way. I, I think I like that the best. Holman does a good job with this in verse 26. Um, the cost of a harlot is a loaf of bread. It's cheap, okay? And we're not talking about, and then let's remind ourselves that the, the concept of harlotry is broader than streetwalkers, okay? And purchased sex is not just um, uh, streetwalkers, okay? Um, it's, it's a transaction that, that people are doing every day. All right, men are doing it, women are doing it. Um, as far as uh, using their bodies to get what they want, and manipulating men with sex to get what they want, and different things, it's a it's a purchase every time, and uh, it's harlotry every time. And uh, it's it, as the Bible describes it there, uh, all non marital marital sex is harlotry. And uh, I know I've made people mad with that in the past, and I've had. A, a, a clenched fist shake, uh, shooken at me, shooken at me, shook, shaked at me, shaken, shaken. All right, with a, with a, a lady very furious, not a lady, but a female very furious that I had called her a harlot. And I said, "Well, I didn't call you a harlot. The Bible called you a harlot, you know." And because quite clearly, there it is. And uh, well, I'm not getting paid. Well, okay, you're a cheap harlot. <laughs> but you're still making a transaction. You are still offering your body and you are still receiving what you think you're receiving or what you want to receive or for whatever reason of why you're doing it. Different things there. And, and maybe next week we'll take some time to just remind ourselves of this vocabulary and, and uh, discuss it. But you're either married or widowed or a virgin or divorced or a harlot. That's all the options there are for, uh, for the women there. All right. Again, on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. Cheap price, okay? And I asked Sharon, I said, well, how much does a loaf of bread cost? And uh, she gave me a, a wide range of things. I said, I want a simple answer. I didn't ask for all this complicated stuff. But yeah, I get it. There's, there's fancy bakeries in town, and they're very proud of the whole grain or whatever they're doing and, and whatever. But the, the, the cheap stuff that we get at H-E-B, if you're just going to make a sandwich, what's a loaf of bread cost? Give me a whatever, Hill Country Fair generic uh, store brand loaf of bread. It's not a lot, okay? But your soul is of infinite price, and that's the contrast being presented here. Over to chapter 7, and you realize the cost until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. So he does not know that it will cost him his life. What's the real cost? And are we confusing price with cost? I think sometimes we do. I think sometimes we confuse price with cost. I think we um, confuse a lot of issues there. I think we confuse money with wealth in, uh, in different applications. I love the, uh, uh, Robbie Dean uses that expression that, that salvation is free, but it's not without cost, okay? Because the price that was paid was paid by Jesus Christ uh, to God, you know, to God the Father on our behalf. The price that he paid, 
So it, grace is free to us as we receive it, but it is not without cost. And, and oftentimes there is a huge difference in price versus cost and other different, <coughs> different things. We can sometimes cheat on the price and end up, it costs us more in the long run if uh, we make certain decisions. And so, uh, different things there. Um, over to Matthew chapter 16. And I think we're familiar with this. If you are really sacrificing your soul for some cheap thrills, what are you doing? You know, what is the, uh, what is the, uh, <laughs> do a cost-benefit analysis, right? Lay out there, what is the, you know, what is the gain and what is the risk and what are you really achieving and what is the cost? Or you think you're getting away with something. You think that there is no cost. And that's what the world tells you. The world says, oh, come on, there's no reason not to. It's fun. Everybody's doing it. And it's perfectly safe and, uh, you know, what are you doing? So Matthew 16, verses 25 and 26. This is the uh, aspect of discipleship here. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Again, we've got a concept here of wishing or desiring. And who controls that? Who controls your desire? What is it that you choose to desire? I asked that question in Proverbs 6, and here it is, wishing. It's, it's, a, it's a will of God issue. It's a will of man issue. It's, it's thelo in the Greek, or um, the aspect of what it is that you choose to desire, to want, to wish, or to will. I think um, we distinguish between wish and will too loosey-goosey sometimes. And we think that will is what I'm, my intellect is making a sovereign decision to do or a volitional decision to do. And then wishing is eh, kind of weaker than that, right? <laughs> I wish uh, I had a 2016 Mustang, whatever, V8. One of those Cobra models would really be, would really be nice. Well, that's just a wish, okay? And a wish is is stupid, you know. If wishes were horses, right? I mean, wishes, you know, there's no expectation of anything approaching reality with a wish, the way that we use wish, okay? We tend to make a, we, yeah, wish is kind of daydreaming and, and will is reality. Here's what I will to do. It is my will for something that I'm going to do, Okay? And so if we say, not my will, but thine be done, we, we, we think of that as a volitional will, what, what our soul is making a choice to do, to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so we've got this, but it's the same word in Greek, the word for will, the word for wish, the, will, the word for desire, the word, it's, it's what we are wanting, okay? And um, we have to choose. I want to follow Christ. Well, there's a cost. But the cost of not following Christ is even worse. Okay? If I want to pursue sin, I can pursue sin. But there's a cost. 
All right? And that's why we we need to conform our will to His will. We need the Word of God to shape uh, our attitudes and what it is that we want and what it is that we desire and what it is that we choose not to desire. And in some cases, we have to retrain our desires, retrain our appetites, starve that old carnal appetite we used to have in the flesh, in the old man, and retrain a new appetite. Say, well, I don't like asparagus. Well, choose to start liking this new appetite, and you'll find that there's nothing in the will of God that tastes bad. (laughs) Okay? Why did I pick asparagus or Brussels sprouts or any of those nasty things? All right. I'm not even, I haven't even gotten to the real verse I'm headed for here yet. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. All right, the things that you choose to do aren't about you. It's not about your self-gratification. Take up his cross and follow me. There's an assignment. I have a cross. He's designed it for me. I need to take I need to take it up. I need to carry it and go wherever it is he tells me to go. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake We'll find it. Sometimes that's kind of hard to ponder. How do I lose my life? Whoever loses his life for my sake. In other words, are you sacrificial? Is it all about you or is it all about Christ? Is the life that you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who died for you and gave himself for you? See? Or are you trying to serve yourself? And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man? Okay. <laughs> profit is not a bad word. The world hates profit. The world tells you profit is evil. No. Profit in the plan of God is, is his design. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So in, in, in the Christian way of life, what, what is the cost? What is the gain? What are you doing? If you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What's the price tag? What can you put on your own soul? Infinitely, nothing. I mean, it's, it's an infinite price. You can't, it's not anything you can put a, uh, a price on. And so that's what makes the cost so uh, horrible. All right. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and so forth, uh, he will then repay every man according to his deeds. The, the reconciliation of accounts will take place. Um, that's why it's, it's, it's so short-sighted to give into the flesh, to give into a momentary light affliction, a momentary uh, passing pleasure of sin, to just sacrifice something eternal for something that's so temporal as uh, as uh, a physical encounter. <laughs> I mean, goodness, how long does that last? And how long is eternity? And what is the price you're paying, the cost to you for this uh, brief um, physical thing? Okay, (laughs) I'm going to get in trouble. Let's back up to chapter 6 now, Proverbs, all right? Its cost far surpasses the price. And this is where the lies come in, because the lies tell you, oh, it doesn't cost you anything. Oh, there's no harm to it. Oh, it's good. Not only is it no cost, it's actually beneficial. 
uh, it's, it's actually good for uh, uh, you know, young people to explore and find themselves and, and, uh, and, and be uh, uh, promiscuous in that. It's actually beneficial. You should. That way you, you really you know, enjoy life. It's part of being young. It's part of, uh, it's part of growing up. And, then, and then, then you know that you've found your true soulmate, your true life partner, because uh, you know, you've, you've already been sleeping around with half the town, and, and you find the one you're compatible with. And how do you know, oh, and, and, you know uh, and how do you know you're compatible if you don't sleep together first? I mean, oh my goodness, what if you, what if you get married and then you find out that, uh, that you're just not compatible? What does that mean? You know, you find out, oh, the sex isn't any good. What does that mean? Okay, they're just lies, 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 lies. All right. Well, there we have it. The, um, the consequences are immediate and eternal. And the, the consequences happen right away, and it continues to happen uh, for the rest of your life, and even on beyond into uh, eternity, and the damage is being done there. All right, so then the next question. Um, what are the consequences? Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's life. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Will not go unpunished punished there's no fine print there's no exceptions there's no well you'll get away with it or well you can get away with a little bit no universal consequences it always has consequences any sex has consequences illicit sex has consequences always whoever touches her will not go unpunished that is an absolute promise Proverbs 6, verses 27 through 29. Um, Let me add to that. Let me add to that with Hebrews. Hebrews 13 with the marriage bed. That's right. Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. There's a reason why all non-marital sex is undefiled harlotry and the only non-harlotry is marital sex i almost want to well to keep it biblical if i can create my i'm not going to single-handedly overwhelm english usage on a global scale but um it would be it would be beneficial to stop calling anything outside of marriage sex and no one would understand me if i tried doing that but um, premarital sex isn't sex. Homosexual sex isn't sex. Extramarital sex isn't sex. Um, but it is. <laughs> you know, the way that, that we use the word, that's the problem, is the way that we use the word. We use the word to refer to the physical activity. And, uh, and that's unfortunate. Because the Bible uses the marriage bed as the, as the term to represent the activity. So anything outside of marriage is not the marriage bed. And that's harlotry. That is, that is the, uh, the nature of harlotry. So, uh, for it says, fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The fornicator is the harlot. Fornicators and adulterers God will judge. It doesn't say 
God might judge, <laughs> or God often judges, or um, fornicators and adulterers, if God finds out about it, unless you keep it hidden, okay? This is an I will statement from the I am. God will judge. And uh, if it's, if it's, I mean, all fornication is fornication, but if then you're going to compound it with adultery on top of that, then it's double compound discipline. God will judge. Yeah, there you have it. It always has consequences. And likewise, I think what we see here, the damage that's done to the soul and the binding of what does to the soul, the uh, testimony that, um, that Shechem had, even after he had raped Dinah, was that there was soul damage that was done. And it affected him. And he wanted, he felt bad about the next morning and wanted to make it right and wanted to go uh, marry this girl because there was damage to his soul and he recognized the damage that he'd done to his soul and to hers. And uh, there's uh, principles that we can glean out of that. Hungry thieves can at least be rationalized even when caught and punished. (laughs) You know, the thief, that's understandable. I get that. If you're starving to death and you steal so that you can eat, it doesn't make it right, but at least it's understandable. At least it's understandable. We can rationalize that. We get that. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy him when he is hungry. You know, we don't despise that. We, we get that. We understand that. You know, the, the, the human being needs to eat. He's starving to death. All right. So when he's found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. There is consequences. It doesn't make it right. We don't say, oh, well, you're poor, so you're entitled to just take what you want. We recognize, oh, okay. Well, at least we understand it, that there is a normal um, hunger that must be fed. But the adulterer? That just doesn't make any sense. And in fact, verse 32, you're out of your mind. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. I can make sense out of a starving guy stealing to eat. But sleeping with somebody else's wife or somebody else's husband, or, uh, that just makes no sense at all. That's self-destructive. You're just asking for it. He who would destroy himself does it. That's self-destructive behavior. Even, even the, 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 um, the uh, secular psychiatrists have this figured out, right? Even pop culture psych- psychology has this figured out. Freud would call this, or Adler, or Jung, or some of these guys. Um, they have a whole vocabulary around self-destructive behavior. <laughs> the Bible was way ahead of them, <laughs> okay? Solomon had this down a thousand years before Christ. He who would destroy himself does it. You're on a self-destructive path. And you're destroying your own soul is what you're doing. Wounds and disgrace he will find, his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied that you give him many gifts. Now the thief has to make restitution, and that's what we're looking at here. He must, when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. Well now if he's poor... 
if he can't afford one loaf of bread, how's he going to pay back seven loaves of bread? Loaves of bread, right? How's he going to do that? Well, he's going to work for it. He may be sold into slavery for it. His children may be sold into slavery for it. Uh, Any tangible assets may get claimed and repossessed. All right. Now, keep in mind, it's only going to happen until the seventh year. There will be a release year. There will be grace in the process. There will be a, uh, a blessing in the meantime to, uh, to be able to learn the better uh, wisdom applications of financial management, the uh, opportunity to have those debts reme- uh, removed, the opportunity for kinsmen to come along and redeem those debts, because that gives them the benefit of being able to glorify Jesus Christ through portraying the kinsman redeemer. All right, God turns cursing into blessing. And he can turn tough times into, into glory. And the, and the blessings in the, in the nation of Israel, the covenant nation of Israel, the blessings for poverty, the blessings for a poor man, okay? Not to just get a government check and get handed everything. He's going to be out there in the field. He's going to be gleaning. He's going to be working. He's not going to be stealing his bread. He's going to be working for his bread. And, uh, and he will be paying the restitution. He's ultimately going to get it back. If that involves seven years of slavery, it involves seven years of slavery. Not the worst thing that's ever happened. It wasn't a brutal slavery of Jew to Jew in the, in the, under the Mosaic Law. They were treated well. Okay? That's going to make people mad. But it is what it is. Okay? The biblical slavery of the Old Testament, as given under Torah, under the Law of Moses, is... Uh, was the procedure applied to prisoners of war that were taken, to, to those in debt, okay? And there was a purpose for it. And they were redeemed from it. They were redeemed from it. The debts were, in fact, you had a jubilee year every 50 years, and you had a national reset on different things. All right. He must give all the substance of his house. And... Um, you know, to have your children taken away. Um, anyway, not saying these are good circumstances, but God works through them. You get past them. You, uh, you're, you're benefited, you're blessed. It becomes a win-win when your kinsman redeemer steps in. I mean, the, the, the loss of the property of, uh, for Ruth, but then look at the blessing at the end of the book of Ruth. And that's, that's the, the system of what it's designed for. All right. Sometimes I wish we had a, I wish, that, that our nation would put um, policies in place for dealing with poverty and charity and other applications that were more biblical and less um, secular humanistic, okay, uh, that have the work requirements. And if a man does not work, neither let him eat. And, the, uh, and also the limitations on the debt. I think we've got this out-of-control debt, and how is the government going to get a handle on personal debt when the government can't even get a handle on the government debt? Um, at a certain point, if it's out of control, it's out of control, and what do you do? All right. Adultery is insane. <laughs> Adultery is insane and self-destructive. There is no possible restitution. You, you, you cheat with the guy's wife. You can't pay him back sevenfold. 
What's the restitution for that? You can't undo something that's been done. There is no satisfactory ransom. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you give him many gifts. There's no, you know, you steal from me, you can pay me back. I will be satisfied, I will be propitiated if I receive the, uh, the determined ransom, if I receive the, the payment for, for a thief. Okay, I will be satisfied if he returns it and repays the restitution, and that's fine. Something stolen can be, can be uh, the restitution can be made. But um, murder, adultery, there, there are classifications of sin for which there is no restitution possible. How do you give me back my loved one when you murdered my wife or you murdered my child or you murdered my, my somebody? Or, or how do you undo a sex act? You can't. You can't undo the, the fornication and the damage that's done there. All right, so there's no possible restitution. This is going to continue on in chapter 7 and uh, we'll have an illustration in chapter 7 because um, not only do you have the exhortation and the, and the commandments, but then you have the illustration with uh, the knucklehead. And, uh, in verse 6 it says, Out of the window of my house I looked through the lattice and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense. And this is the fellow that does not apply the doctrine from chapter 6. And it cost him his life. The arrow pierces through his liver. He doesn't even realize. He doesn't even realize. He's, uh, he's out there living the Charlie Sheen lifestyle and uh, receiving the, the consequences. All right. Any questions on that? We're about five minutes early, but I'm done with chapter six. We'll move on to chapter seven next week. Lord willing and rapture pending. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me riches, nor poverty. That's Proverbs, but I can't. Proverbs 30, probably? Verse 8. Yes, Proverbs 30, verse. Did you know that, or did you look it up on Logos? Ah, good for you. I was guessing 30, but I hadn't spotted it there. Verse 8. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Yep. That I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? That I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Yep. Excellent proverb. Thank you. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the admonitions in Scripture. I ask that we would be humble before your word and let your word do the work. And I do thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.